0: The 28 countries with forces in the Gulf area have exhausted all reasonable efforts to reach a peaceful resolution. Have no choice but to drive Saddam from Kuwait by force. We will not fail. During the night, hundreds of American and British aircraft have mounted attacks on targets in Iraq and occupied Kuwait. Latest reports say that the bombing has resumed this morning. ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening, the deadline has come and gone. The Iraqis are living on what President Bush calls borrowed time. It is no longer whether the war will start but when. They know that in Baghdad as well as in Washington there is a rumour every hour. Hello and welcome to the next episode of What in the World? International Relations Explained. A political-themed podcast which aims to explain international events in an easy to listen to and accessible way trying to be around 30 minutes long to keep everyone's interest. I'm Sam, your host. I have two top degrees in international relations and international security, and I love everything international politics. So far, I've covered a range of topics um, from American foreign policy under the new president, Joe Biden, uh, issues uh, ongoing in the South China Sea, and reform of the United Nations Security Council, plus many more. Today, we have an interesting topic, Because most of my topics, whilst having historical undertones, are often of present-day situations and looking into the future. Well, we have a special episode today because we're exclusively going to look at a historical topic, one that has had profound impacts on international politics. So, let's get into today's historical episode. Only a few weeks ago, it was the anniversary of the the end of of a short but impactful conflict in the Middle East, a conflict which saw a huge US-led military coalition and it showed how the international community can work together. This is the first Gulf War or the Persian Gulf War as some other people call it. So in the podcast today I will be exclusively looking at the build-up to this crisis as this is really where the meat of international politics lies. Unfortunately, I will not be talking about the day-to-day military operations in any great detail, because I'm not a military historian, and I don't know too much about that. Um, But if that is really what you're interested in, after you've listened to this podcast, I recommend looking at Dan Snow's uh, history podcast called uh, History Hit, and finding the Gulf War episode, where he interviews General Sir Rupert Smith, who commanded the UK's 1st Armoured Division during this conflict, where you can kind of get an idea about the military side of things um, from a UK standpoint. So after this podcast, do go take a listen to that one. But let's get into uh, today's episode and the meat of today's episode. So, on the 2nd of August 1990, a military coalition of 35 nations led by the United States launched Operation Desert Shield, which, then followed, which was then followed by the infamous Operation Desert Storm. And this was launched against Saddam Hussein's Iraq, after he decided to invade the small but oil-rich neighbouring country of Kuwait. And there are a few aspects here that need to be tackled to get a true understanding of this whole crisis, to truly understand what led to Saddam Hussein, one of the world's most brutal dictators, a man who ruled his population with an iron grip. What caused him to want to invade an 18,000 square kilometer country called Kuwait? But to the same extent, what led the US to intervene in this conflict with the world's largest coalition since World War II? We have to really understand why Iraq decided to invade Kuwait. But there's not just one reason it's a myriad of reasons and if anyone ever tells you oh it's because of this or it's because of this one thing they are categorically wrong and they misunderstand the geopolitical situation at the time. We can't really look at the days leading up to the invasion of Kuwait first but we actually need to travel a few years back in time. So let's take ourselves back to 1988. This has seen the end to an eight year long conflict between Iran and Iraq. Both pretty big powers in the Middle East. The conflict occurred after Iraq decided to invade neighbouring Iran in a short, well what was supposed to be a short, preventative war. And I mean preventative in the sense Saddam Hussein wanted to invade Iran to prevent the Islamic revolution which had taken hold in Iran from sweeping through into Iraq Thus overthrowing his regime and being a threat to his Arab nationalist ideology of Baathism, which promotes the development and creation of a unified Arab state through the leadership of a vanguard policy which was his, uh, sorry, his a vanguard party, which was his party over any type of progressive revolutionary government Iraq had hoped to have a decisive victory and put an end to the Iranian exportation of the revolution and to cripple Iran and become the superpower in the Middle East, but well one can wish. The outcome of this war was far and I mean absolutely far from what Iraq had hoped to achieve. The war lasted over 8 years and was devastating to both sides. The Iran-Iraq war was the deadliest conventional war ever fought between regular armies of developing countries. Iraqi casualties are estimated at between 105,000 to 200,000 killed, while about 400,000 have been wounded and some 70,000 were taken prisoners. Iranian government sources state that the war cost Iran an estimated 200,000 to 220,000, or up to 262,000 according to conservative Western estimates. Um, 60,000 were missing in action, and eleven between 11,000 and 16,000 civilians were killed. And in regards to civilians, we saw horrendous atrocities on civilians, indiscriminate bo- uh, bombings of civilian populations, and the use of chemical and biological weapons, which is against international law. The conflict has also been compared to World War I in the sense of its use of tactics, large-scale trench warfare, lots of barbed wire, and often, at times, large and long periods of stalemates. So after eight years, and a UN-brokered ceasefire to begin with, there was no real winner. But why does this matter? Well, for two reasons. The Iraq-Iran war gives, a, gives us a glimpse into the mindset of Saddam Hussein. Saddam is a man who has ambitions for Iraq. An Iraq that will be the powerhouse of the Middle East. A strong and stable authoritarian government. Free from foreign influence and ideas that would threaten the stability of Saddam. And an Iraq that will be able to exert its power over others. Now you have to remember power is key in international politics. Countries who have power feel more secure. Um, I don't buy that... They are more secure, but they will potentially feel more secure, so they always want power. And in a world where there is no 999 or 911 to call if you are in trouble or feel insecure, power is key. And whilst the United Nations attempts to bridge the gap between feeling insecure and having some type of world government, ultimately there isn't one. And the only people capable of uh, making sure you feel secure, secure are yourselves. And the second reason is that Iran, the Iran-Iraq war matters because the economic outcome provides one of the justifications for the invasion of Kuwait. Iraq left that war economically crippled. And whilst in a social sense many Iraqis were pleased that the war was over and there had been some, some gains... This wave of um, enthusiasm soon dissipated pretty quickly because there was a huge realization to the economic cost of the war both to civilians and to Saddam Hussein's government. And I found a journal article from uh, the 1990s which lists the huge economic cost to Iraq and bear in mind these economic figures I'm about to give are from the 1990s so they don't account for inflation and now real-term values. Of the figure uh, of anything today. Economic estimates put the cost of reconstruction at 230 billion US dollars and even if one adopts the most optimistic and highly unrealistic uh, assumption that if every dollar of oil revenue that Iraq had was put into the reconstruction effort it would still require nearly two decades to repair the total damage. As things stood a year after the termination of hostilities, Iraq's oil revenues of 13 billion US dollars per annum did not even suffice to cover ongoing expenditures. With civilian imports approximating 12 billion, military imports exceeding 5 billion, debt repayments totalling some 5 billion, and transfers by foreign workers toppling 1 billion, the regime needed an extra 10 billion every year to balance balance just its current deficit before it could embark on the task of reconstruction. Iraq also had an $80 billion worth of foreign debt and this was extremely disturbing for the Hussein government since repayment and the consequent reluctance of foreign companies and governments to extend further credit implied that economic reconstruction would have to be shelved also, domestic economic problems seemed equally ominous. Not only did intensive privatisation measures um, enacted by Hussein since in the late uh, war years, they didn't really do anything. In fact, they created a severe backlash. The high expectation, expectations created among the various sectors of Iraqi society were only matched by soaring inflation, forcing Hussein to reintroduce price controls and give the public its seasonal quota of scapegoats, which was the finance minister uh, in 1989 and then the acting agricultural minister uh, who were removed from position for incompetence and being the root cause of Iraq's economic woes. So here we see the costs are huge. The Iran-Iraq war had not paid off at all and had considerably crippled Iraq. and I want to emphasize the importance of the economic cost of the war. And the fact about oil uh, is pretty important because 95% of Iraq's GDP at the time was due to oil exportation and the selling of oil. And we all know that oil is a highly volatile commodity. Prices rise and fall depending on quotas, the amount of oil in circulation, and how much drilling is going on, and, and many other factors. So Iraq's economy was on its knees no foreign investors and was dependent on the price price of oil being high and stable. And to top it all off, at the beginning, the end of the war was only technically a ceasefire, meaning that the Iraqi army had to be kept at high mobilisation, costing the Iraqi treasury an utter fortune, money they just didn't have. All of this put together is a disaster for Iraq. Now why does the economic consequences of the Iraq-Iran war matter? It's because it provides an interlude and context to the Kuwait invasion. War with Kuwait was not always a given, nor was it the first choice of the Saddam Hussein government. Hussein sought diplomatic means in order to rid his country of the economic catastrophe that he had put it into. He attempted to convince other uh, Middle Eastern and Gulf states to forgive their loans that they had given Iraq, and his reasoning was That the Iran-Iraq war was not a private matter between the two countries, but rather it was a matter that concerned all the Gulf states and was a matter for survival because the Iranian revolution could not spread and destabilise the region, thanks to Iraq. This didn't work. Many of the Gulf states didn't buy this argument. And when this didn't work, Hussein began using coercive diplomacy, so diplomacy backed up by some military manoeuvres or other power play means. So he began his diplomatic missions while stationing troops on the border of Kuwait and other Gulf states to kind of flex his muscles. This still had no luck. What was also happening at the time, which was key, was that the price of oil was falling And that's not good for Iraq at all. And the culprits of this uh, were Kuwait and the UAE, the United uh, Arab Emirates. And this was because Kuwait and the UAE were producing way above their OPEC quotas. And for those of you who don't know what OPEC means, OPEC is the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries. And this is an organization that decides how much oil each country can drill and export, uh, in a sense to control prices. Uh, keep them at certain um, per dollar per barrel. Uh, OPEC members are supposed to abide by the agreements, which at the time Kuwait and the UAE were not doing, which caused prices to drop because oil was flooding the markets. Saddam said at a meeting with foreign Arab leaders, and I quote, for every single dollar drop in the price of a barrel of oil, our loss amounts to one billion a year. Now that's pretty staggering for a developing country who is already in the midst of an economic crisis. Also, at this meeting, we see the first talk of conflict arise. Saddam said that Iraq was under economic pressure and as if it was already in a war. Thus, it may have to stand up to protect itself against these unfair oil prices by Kuwait being forced upon them by Kuwait and the UAE. After many months of constant pressure and constant goings-on by Sudan, and in the end, pressure from the Saudis and the Jordanians and some others, Kuwait and the UAE finally met quotas. These concessions, nevertheless, were too little too late. By that time, Hussein was expecting far more from Kuwait than just returning to the quotas. He probably had not yet made up his mind to invade the tiny, tiny little country, but he was certainly bent on extracting substantial gains on top of the complete moratorium of the war loans. Nothing less than that would satisfy him, particularly in the light of widespread international pressure which he faced at the time. Also, during this period, uh, Saddam seemed to develop some severe case of paranoia, that there was this international conspiracy to overthrow him, and this conspiracy was led by the Zionists in Israel. And whilst, of course, there were some who wanted Saddam gone, there was no international conspiracy to overthrow him. So let's look at the facts. Saddam was a madman who wanted a great Iraq. The Iraq-Iran war had not achieved much and in fact caused huge economic crisis in Iraq. Falling oil prices by overproduction of Kuwait and UAE. Uh, Saddam developing some type of paranoia of a global conspiracy headed by the Israelis. These things really sealed the fate for Kuwait. Saddam was done with the begging to other countries to help with his economic crisis, and any further begging would just humiliate him further, and he was not going to do this. On July 16th, the pressure on Kuwait was decisively stepped up. In a letter to the Secretary General of the Arab League, some type of like International organization that many North African and Arab countries are members of uh, is a member of the Iraqi Foreign Minister Tariq Aziz reiterated the accusation that Kuwait and the UAE had, and I quote, implemented an international scheme to glut the oil market with a quantity of oil that exceeded their quotas as fixed by OPEC. And according to Aziz, this policy had devastating impact on the Middle East. And I quote again, he said this. The drop in oil prices between 1981 and 1990 led to a total loss of 500 billion by Arab states, of which Iraq sustained $89 billion. Quote. And to add insult to injury, Kuwait had directly robbed the Iraqi Treasury of, back to quoting because these are important quotes, setting up oil installations in the southern section of the Iraqi Al uh, Rumalia oil field and extracted oil from it. In the Iraqi assessment, the value of oil stolen by the Kuwaiti government from the Al Ramallah oil field in this manner amounted to 2.4 billion US dollars. So, in order to rectify this behavior and help Iraq recover from the dire economic plight that it had now faced, it had to defend uh, its national soil, it had to defend its national honor and it had to defend its national wealth. And Aziz tabled several demands, these being the raising of oil prices to over $25 a barrel, the cessation of Kuwaiti theft of oil from the Iraqi oil field, and the return of 2.4 billion stolen from Iraq. Also, a complete moratorium on Iraq's wartime loans and the formation of an Arab plan similar to the Marshall Plan, to compensate uh, Iraq for some of the losses during the Iraq-Iran war. The Kuwaitis ignored any of these demands, and many of them thought that Iraq was just bluffing, um, and were just begging as usual, and just constantly going on about oil, oil, money, uh, and its economic situation. They did realise that in the end some concessions would have to be made, but they didn't expect um, them to be, have to be too hefty on the Kuwaitis. However, they ignored these demands at their peril. To Saddam, Kuwait offered many answers to his worries. By adding Kuwait's fabulous wealth to the depleted Iraqi treasury, Hussein hoped to slash Iraq's foreign debt and to launch the ambitious reconstruction programs that he had promised his people in the wake of the Iran-Iraq war. Given Iraq's historical claim to Kuwait, supposed historical claim to Kuwait, it should be added, as Kuwait was a sovereign state before Iraq, um, its occupation could lift Hussein's national prestige by portraying him as the liberator of the usurped Iraqi lands. Moreover, the campaign would engage the military in what he believed to be the riskless venture abroad, thus satisfying their yearning for national gratitude while keeping them at a safe distance from Baghdad. Last but not least the capital of Kuwait would make Iraq the leading power in the Arab world and give it a decisive say in the world oil market. In short, in one stroke, Hussein's position would be permanently secured. And this is security he wanted. What's also interesting is that Saddam thought he had American support, if at least not support neutrality. The days before the invasion, Saddam met with the American ambassador, where he gave a long old speech about the economic war being fought against Iraq, oil prices, OPEC, etc, etc, etc. Stuff I've already mentioned. The ambassador's reply was something along the lines of this. He said something like, this is an issue for the Arabs to sort out. But he did caution against confrontation, and he did make it clear that America could not support any military action. But Saddam took this idea that this is an issue for the Arabs to sort out, as a way of saying that the U.S. would not intervene or get involved in this conflict, and it wouldn't get involved in, in it militarily, which is something Saddam was very fearful of. Because although Saddam was a paranoid madman, he knew international relations very well. He understood geopolitics, he understood who the powerful people were, and he knew If he could get a guarantee or a green light or a neutral position from the world's biggest superpower to uh, to not intervene, then that would be good and he should do it. So, Saddam still embarked on one last negotiation between Iraq and Kuwait. And many analysts say, well, the decision was already made and this was just to kind of give uh, a reason for the invasion. Uh, So, there was one last negotiation between Iraq and Kuwait where nothing was reached. The invasion began on the 2nd of August 1990 and 12 hours later, most resistance had ended within Kuwait and the royal family had fled, allowing Iraq to control most of Kuwait. After two days of intense combat, most of the Kuwaiti military were either overrun by the Iraqi Republican Guard or had escaped to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the leader of um, Kuwait and the ministers fled south along the highway for, refugee, uh, for refuge in Saudi Arabia and Iraqi ground forces consolidated their control of Kuwaiti city uh, and they then headed south and redeployed along the Saudi border. Uh, after decisive Iraqi victory, Saddam initially installed a puppet regime known as the Provisional Government of Free Kuwait before installing his cousin Al-Hussein Al-Majid as Kuwait's governor on the 8th of August. After the invasion, the Iraqi military looted over 1 billion in banknotes from the Kuwait's, uh, from Kuwaiti's central bank. At the same time, Saddam Hussein made the Kuwaiti dinar equal to the Iraqi dinar, thereby lowering the Kuwaiti currency to 1 of its original value. Now, America did not stand neutral in this conflict. We all know that it didn't stand conflict. And in fact, it was deeply concerned at the invasion of Kuwait. By Saddam Hussein. Uh, there are some stories go. That uh, George Bush Senior. The President at the time. Was unsure if America should continue past diplomatic protest. But that it was Margaret Thatcher. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Who likened the invasion to that of Hitler. During World War. Uh, before World War Two, And also likened it to the Falklands War. Which was only eight years previously. And she said to him. Remember George. This is no time to go wobbly. Now, whether this is true or not, or whether Bush was already um, set on war, we won't know. Bush will only know that himself. And unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, he's gone. So the US conducted an economic blockade of Iraq and sent warships along with many Western and even Arab allies to the Gulf. There's also a stroke of diplomatic masterpiece um, that the US achieved and this was managing to convince the Saudis to allow a build-up of foreign military forces in Saudi Arabia to be able to launch an invasion from Saudi Arabia. The US managed to convince um, the Saudis that for Iraq, Saudi Arabia was next on the list for Saddam to invade. Many people think, though, that the invasion of US troops was a foregone conclusion. In my opinion, it was not. And it was hoped that the economic blockade would do the job. The fact that Iran, uh, sorry, that Iraq was mainly an export exporting country, uh, exporting country of oil, and well, now they couldn't do any of that because of the blockade. That it would cripple them and force Saddam to withdraw from Kuwait. Now, whilst this may have been the case if the blockade was allowed to go on further, who knows how long? And so the U.S. felt that the economic blockade was not having the desired effect uh, quick enough. So the U.S. and U.K. also managed to get the Security Council to agree to a resolution stating that if Saddam did not withdraw his troops from Kuwait, um, that military action would be authorised. With that, the U.S. and coalition forces considerably up their presence in the region in the hope that this would scare Saddam, and we would see a bloodless battle, uh, end to the uh, crisis in the Gulf. But in Saddam's mind, he did not see the West having any hope of intervening. Because he believed that the West and the US did not have the resolve. And that the US public especially would be against putting US troops on a foreign soil in a foreign war. Because Vietnam syndrome was still pretty heavy at this point. However, in the US, many reports were suggesting that a war with Iraq would be quick, very quick. There would be minimal US casualties and a decisive victory for the US. Bush also had four no's. No negotiations, no compromises, no attempts at face-saving and no rewards for aggression. Saddam was to unconditionally withdraw or else. And of course, the the rest is history. We know that he did not withdraw... And that the U.S.-led coalition f- uh, forces forced a very quick victory on Iraq. Many analysts will conclude that the Gulf War is where we see the real advancement into the 21st-century style warfare. If World War One was for the 20th century, then the first Gulf War was for the 21st. We saw GPS, laser-guided missiles, overwhelming force in a in a quick manner, armored battles that far exceeded. World War II with modern tanks. So, this was a true modern war. The outcome of this was Saddam would be forced to withdraw his troops. The Iraqi uh, economy was absolutely in tatters. It was militarily weakened, and Saddam became an even more paranoid maniac, um, being convinced that everyone was out to get him. Now, why didn't the coalition just get rid of Saddam? Well, Bush understood that diplomatic pressure had been applied so perfectly on many of these countries to support him that he, couldn't, that he couldn't betray this. And even the Soviet Union supported the U.N. or the U.S.-led action in Saudi Arabia. And in regards to the U.N., the U.N. Security Council resolution only stated and authorized military action unless Sudan withdrew his troops from Kuwait. Well, Saddam withdrew his troops, so the Security Council resolution was no longer valid and there was no mandate to go in and overthrow Saddam's government or occupy the country. So, that was the end of the matter. The coalition had won, and thus they should go no further. Uh, Well, we know this wasn't the case, and a decade later, the people, along with the US, would overthrow Saddam Hussein. And the outcome of this all was Kuwait was free, and to this day still thanks the US and its allies for its support. This is a truly modern conflict, one that still needs to be studied to this day. So that's the end of today's podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening to the story of how the first Gulf War came about. This is a huge topic, and I would urge you to go and look at it in more detail. Find out about the military action on the ground Look at what the US was doing during the war, and then look at the aftermath for Iraq, uh, its economy. Go do some more research. It is really, truly interesting. Interesting. It continues to be a well-studied period of history, and it's not the final time that Iraq will appear in our history books. Um, so, it's very important. Please do tune in next time, where we will be staying in the Middle East, and attempt to examine the UN's longest-running issue the Israel-Palestine conflict. This should be a good one. Thank you so much and goodbye.